So, um, it's been said that emotions are a good barometer, but a terrible compass. I'll give you a second to think about that. If you don't know what a barometer is, barometer is, I don't know what atmospheric pressure is, but you can measure it with a barometer, okay? So maybe we could use a different metaphor. Emotions are a good thermometer, but not a good compass, okay? Um, how many of you know what the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, are there like 17 of those? I don't know. I think I saw one of them like years ago, but I don't know what number they're on now. So Jack Sparrow is the main character. There's only five? Okay, I was close. Um, so Jack Sparrow is the main character, and he's this like crazy, chaotic, wild, swashbuckling pirate, and he has a compass. But Jack Sparrow's compass is very special um, because it points to whatever its owner wants most. So, okay, our emotions are a terrible compass unless they're like a Jack Sparrow compass. Then that's kind of a good metaphor. So um, I'm going to recommend two books today at some point or other in this sermon, and here's the first one. We use this, I think, as a book of the month. We used to do book of the month a while ago. Don't Follow Your Heart by John Bloom. This is a great book. And right in the beginning, he says this, Follow your heart is a creed embraced by billions of people. It's a statement of faith in one of the great pop cultural myths of the Western world, a gospel proclaimed in many of our stories, movies, and songs. Essentially, it's a belief that your heart is a compass inside of you that will direct you to your own true north if you just have the courage to follow it. It says that your heart is a true guide that will lead you to true happiness if you just have the courage to listen to it. The creed says that you are lost and your heart will save you. This creed can sound so simple and beautiful and liberating. For lost people, it's, tempt, it's a tempting gospel to believe. And then he says, until you consider that your heart has sociopathic tendencies. <laughs> he says, my heart tells me that all of reality ought to serve my desires. My heart likes to think the best of me and the worst of others. Unless those others happen to think well of me, then they're wonderful people. So then he says, no, our hearts will not save us. We need to be saved from our hearts. This is a really good book. Recommend it. So our hearts are not good compasses, unless they're Jack Sparrow compasses. They are barometers, thermometers. So this morning... We're still in the book of Proverbs. We went through the first nine chapters kind of section by section, and the rest of the book is hard to go through like that. So we instead have been going by theme. Talked about friendship and words and so forth. And this morning, we're going to be looking at emotions. So wisdom and emotions. God's wisdom for our emotions. And our outline is, what are they? What are emotions? What should we do with them? Jesus, our emotional redeemer, and then wisdom for emotions. We're just going to take three emotions that Proverbs mentions and kind of walk through those in turn as example applications. Fear, anger, and joy. Okay? So that's where we're headed. First point, what are emotions? 
This actually kind of caught me in my, in my tracks this week. Go ahead and try to define them. And you can't use the word feelings in your definition. Try to define emotions. One dictionary definition I found actually said a state of feeling. That's pathetic. You can't do that. Here, another question. Where do they originate? In your mind? In your body? Somewhere else? Anybody ever get hangry? Do you know what that is? Is that anger or crankiness caused by the hunger of your body? When you're anxious, is that caused by the hamster wheel of what-ifs in your mind? Do we need some wisdom here? It's kind of complex. Is it, or is this all just like a scholastic debate, you know, with no real relevance for the real world? Definitions of, like, come on. Well, consider the fact that it's not a matter of whether you will deal with your emotions. It's how you will deal with them. Even if you choose not to deal with them, you're going to be dealing with them. You tracking with me? They will either serve you or plague you. They will hurt you, help you or hurt you and help or hurt others as well. So it's not a matter of if, it's when and how we deal with our emotions. If you and I don't submit our emotions to God and seek for King Jesus to rule over our emotions by his word and spirit, then we will be subject to our emotions. And others will be subject to our unruly emotions. So, okay, what are emotions? I'll venture a definition. Emotions are movements, motions of the soul that flow from what you love and what you hate, what you value and what you fear. I'll say that again. I guess it's on the screen, so that'll help you. Um, if you wanted to write it down. Motions are movements, motions. You can even hear it in the word, right? Motion, emotion. They're movements, motions of the soul that flow from what we love and what we hate, what we value and what we fear. It actually seems that all emotions are reactive, responsive to something or other or a complex of things. We'll come back to that. So the word comes from French to move out to move away, remove, stir up, irritate. Our modern concept or usage in the English language began apparently back in the 1830s, some guy named Thomas Brown. Um, before that, various emotions were labeled as passions, appetites, affections, sentiments, okay? Now we use this word emotions. It's kind of like this umbrella term, and we've got a bunch of stuff underneath it. Well, how many emotions are there? There have been various attempts uh, you know, at a taxonomy of human emotions. Some say there are only four basic emotions, happiness, sadness, fear, and anger. Some say six. Some guy has this wheel of emotions, you know, and there's eight of them, and they're in pairs, and they kind of, you know, like, who cares? Okay, whatever. There's a lot of emotions. They probably do boil down to four to six basic ones. Um, the word emotion is not used in the Bible, okay? But the Bible talks a lot about emotions. And the Proverbs do specifically. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And the Bible and Proverbs has a lot to say about things like fear. Emotions umbrella, 
Under that umbrella, fear, anxiety, gratitude, joy, grief, sorrow, um, hurt, anger, jealousy, hate. So, told you there was two books I was going to recommend. Um, this book, Untangling Emotions. Actually, Eugene gave this to me. Thank you, Eugene. It's really helpful. Um, I'll give it back to you. Um, I know you lent it to me. So, um, it's called Untangling Emotions. And in the book, the authors explain how emotions do at least three main things. This is really helpful. Emotions communicate what we value and love, and they also can communicate good things or bad things, right, about what we value and love. They can kind of expose us, <laughs> reveal, um, reveal our loves and hates, either you know, good, bad, or ugly, whatever that is. They communicate what's important to us, again, for good or ill. Secondly, they help us relate to others. And again, that's also for good or for ill. They can create connection that goes deeper. They can also tear people and relationships apart. So they help us connect and relate to others, but they can also lead to relational brokenness, separation, and friction. So just obvious examples or just get your, your uh, juices flowing here. Is there a connection between loving your neighbor and rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep? Of course there is. If, if, something, if someone rejoices in a good thing and you are jealous of that person, jealousy is an emotion, does that impact your relationship? course it does. It's going to actually drive you apart. If your neighbor is weeping over some bad thing and you say, serves him right, or serves you right, if you say it right to them, like, is that going to impact your relationship? Yeah. But if instead you weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, what's going to happen? Relate, connect. Okay, so communicate, relate. Um, emotions communicate. They reveal things, what we love and, and value. They help us relate to others. And then thirdly, they motivate us to pursue our loves and avoid what we fear. And again, this is both in good and bad ways. Easy way to see this, how, how strong of, an, of a motivation can anger be? Really strong. How about fear? How much of a motivator can that be? It's obvious, okay? So emotions communicate, reveal, expose. They're also a huge part of the way we connect with and relate to others, and they motivate us. So again, emotions are like a barometer, an instrument that registers and responds to fluctuations and atmospheric pressure. It's an indicator. They're good at that. They're bad at being a compass. Don't try to follow your emotions like a compass. They will often lead you astray. So what should we do with them? Point number two. What should we do with our emotions? We must actively pursue God's wisdom and grace for our emotions. I think, I think the danger for some people, especially if you're kind of wired more, you know, stoic and, you know, tough or whatever, they're unreliable, so we're just going to shelve them because they're unreliable and unruly. No, no, no. We need our emotions to be redeemed along with the rest of us. We need them to come under the lordship of Christ and the governance of the Holy Spirit. So Proverbs shines light on the path for us. Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own heart is a fool, 
but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. So there's a direction to walking. There's a path to walk. You are directing your heart rather than just listening to and responding and being led around by your heart. So we dare not trust in our emotions without thinking, and we also dare not just ignore our emotions and just stuff them down and set them aside. Ah, I just got to move on. I don't have time for this. Okay, maybe in the short run that might be necessary in certain instances, but like if we never deal with what's going on in here, that's not good. You are going to be dealing with those emotions because they're going to just bubble up in other ways. And the same thing when we relate to other people, don't just impatiently, get over it. So becoming a stoic isn't the Christian answer. That's not the wise answer. Nor is simply caving in and being driven along like a ship without a rudder or an anchor. Again, not only will we have to deal with them, boiling under the surface, but so will others. So we will either process them and control them wisely or foolishly. So in this room, certainly we have people who are numb, don't feel much at all. You might be coming in just feeling dead inside, like your emotions have been cauterized. That can happen for a variety of reasons. It could be short-lived. It can be years and years. Again, it can happen for a variety of reasons. Combat, abuse, some other seriously traumatic experience can have a deadening effect because it's a coping mechanism. Like you just can't feel that much pain all the time. There are also people in the room who are dominated by emotions and regularly held captive to or driven and tossed like a ship without an anchor. And you may feel like a helpless victim or a slave of your emotions. So again, what should we do? There's lots of things we can do, and I don't know all the things that we can do, nor could I cover the ones that I do know, but we've got to at least begin with a few things and learn to do these things on the regular, okay? We must receive our emotions as a good gift from God. Like, if you don't recognize that they're actually a good gift from God, yes, they they can get all twisted and tangled and, you know, go go haywire, but ultimately they're a good gift for God, good gift from God for good, for our good and the good of our relationships. So receiving those as a good gift from God, where we need to repent of sinful emotions, even when they feel as natural as breathing, we need to do that. Remember back in chapter one, turn and I will pour out my spirit on you. This needs to be our orientation as we walk through the Proverbs. We're gonna need to change, we need to grow. We also need to recognize right emotions to avoid false guilt. Maybe some of you grew up in, you know, like, You could never cry or you could never, you know, express yourself and you could maybe feel guilty about not having it together or ever feeling bad. That would be false guilt. And then we need to seek the redemption and renewal, the healing and the shaping of our emotions, disciplining our emotions and discipling them by grace. That's what Jesus wants to do. So don't simply defer to your heart. 
Don't follow your heart. The Proverbs say, direct your heart. Proverbs 23, 19. Hear, my son. So here's your heavenly father coming to speak to all of us, to put his arm around us and say, hear, my son, hear, my daughter, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. So I think many of us can oftentimes feel conflicted. We can feel like a big ball of conflicted and confused emotions. And, you know, sometimes you fixate on one likely perpetrator or maybe a hapless bystander like a toddler, and you just, like, unload on that person. Maybe a spouse. Even though the causes, the contributing factors of how you're feeling are manifold. Okay, just so. Like last night, here, I'm preaching on emotions. And last night, it was a long day, trying to re-roof the garage, wasn't going like I was hoping it would go, not nearly as far as we should have gotten. And I'm like trying to clean up some things before I get to work, you know, last night. And I'm grabbing, you know, sometimes I'm like, I have the, the cup ministry or something in my home, like there's a can, can of... Um, sparkling water here and there's a cup from there and I'm like I should probably just no kids you need to do that okay most of them were either asleep or somewhere else and I grabbed this I thought it was an empty can of sparkling water if you're going to take a can of sparkling water drink the whole thing anyway um, and I and I knocked it and it was behind the couch and, and I just like I just grabbed that stupid thing and I almost opened the back door and threw it out I didn't I was like starting to cool off even though it was like, oh, I can't believe it. And then I was like, okay, go outside. I poured it out. I'm repenting in the driveway. And then I came back in. I'm sorry, Beth. I'm sorry, Ben. And anyway, okay, where was I? Um, so we can feel like this big conflicted ball of whatever. And a variety of situations and people have gathered some tinder and kindling. And then one thing just strikes the match and boom, well, if you don't keep a pulse and you have no idea, if like you're not actively seeking to have Jesus redeem and shape and heal and form your emotions, you're going to do a lot of damage. We're all a mixed bag. You know, one good emotion goes in overdrive, and, you know, even that can end up leading us astray. So there's this great line in Untangling Emotions that goes like this. Emotions don't come in single file. Like, if we're going to deal with this, hmm, this is, it's not going to be like, well, now I'm going to have the lesson on fear. And then when I figure that out, now I'm going to have the lesson on anxiety. And uh, no, they come like at you, and they're not like nice and polite, in line. Okay, I'm next, you know? Emotions don't come in single file. Why is that? Because we love lots of things, not just one thing. Because we fear lots of things, not just one thing. We need wisdom from God to untangle our emotions and have him reorder our lives, our loves, our fears. Fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom is not simply to deny our emotions, stuff them down in a way. Wisdom is also not to fake it till we make it. I love this quote by Eric Tonnis. I've quoted it 
probably many times over the last 14 years, but here it is again. There's this idea that to live out of conformity with how I feel is hypocrisy. But that's a wrong definition of hypocrisy. To live out of conformity to what I believe is hypocrisy. To live in conformity with what I believe in spite of what I feel isn't hypocrisy, it's integrity. So sometimes, many times, we need to not fake it till we make it. We need to fight our twisted, tangled, broken, haywire, chaotic emotions. We need wisdom and we need grace and strength from Jesus to do it. It is definitely not wisdom to stuff it away, and it's definitely not wisdom to defer to our emotions and allow them to rule us. So you might, again, this morning feel dead inside like you're in an emotional desert. You might feel like a roiling cauldron of frustration and anger, like an emotional geyser or volcano, or maybe that's what parts of this past week look like for you. You might feel like a confusing bundle of emotions, like out of control, like an emotional jungle. What do we do? Well, I don't want to oversimplify, but certainly this is true in a place to start. Give yourself to Jesus. Pour your heart out to him. Ask him to help you understand yourself and give you his wisdom and renew you heart, mind, and body. This is what God's word is aiming to do. So he can turn the desert into a garden. Go read Isaiah 55. He can calm the storm in your soul. Go read the, storming, uh, the calming of the storm in the Gospels. He can tame the jungle and help us find our way through, which brings us to point number three, Jesus, our emotional redeemer. I mean that in both senses. Do you hear both senses? Jesus is our emotional redeemer in that he is the perfect human and he was full of emotions. And he is the redeemer of our emotions. Everybody with me? Okay. So let's look at those one at a time. Jesus is our emotional redeemer. Like, what does it look like to be wise? What does it look like to be fully redeemed? Well, look at Jesus, the perfect human. He is what it means to be truly human. And Jesus was and is full of emotions. So we're just going to go through a number of texts here. And this is an opportunity to just behold and admire and be thankful for and know who we ought to be going to for the redemption, renewal of our emotions. Like, what does maturity even look like? Well, here, here let's, let's just paint a little sketch here from the Gospels. Remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus? And here this guy is ultimately, Jesus knows that he's going to shrug his shoulders and think it's a bad deal. He'd rather have his property than Jesus and treasure in heaven. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Jesus is full of love. Even for people who, eh, and go the other way. Love isn't just an emotion. I know, because maybe some of you are, you got some, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
objections popping up in your head. But listen, it must certainly be emotional and not merely intellectual and not only equated with action. You know why I say that? Because in 1 Corinthians 13, it says you can give your, like, all your money away. You can give your body to be burned. You can be a martyr. That's a lot of action, isn't it? But if you don't have love, oh, so maybe love is not equated 100%, you know, it's only action. How about this? Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, he acted. Oh, there must be something prior to the action that drives the action, okay? So there is a heart-level dynamic here, and Jesus is full of love, and that's what wisdom looks like. That's what we ought to be growing into and being conformed to. Jesus is also full of compassion. Remember when the leper came to him in Mark 1? He was moved with pity. Compassion. He stretched out his hand and touched the leper and said to him, of course I will. Be clean. And he cleansed the leper. Full of love, full of compassion. He was a man of tears. Luke 19, 41. Remember when he drew near to the city of Jerusalem and he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Broke his heart to see the hardness of heart in Jerusalem. Jesus was also full of anger at times. Remember in Mark 3, he looked around You know, there was this guy with a shriveled hand and it was on a Sabbath and he's going to heal this guy and the Pharisees are looking like, you better not do that on the Sabbath or we're going to nail you. And he he looks around with anger, grieved. Like that combination, we can maybe do anger pretty well or we can do grief pretty well, but you see, he's not just like flipping mad at these ridiculous Pharisees. He is angry at that self-righteousness and contempt of other people, putting rules above, you know, love. But he's also grieved at their hardness of heart. So he's full of anger at times. Remember when people were bringing little children to Jesus that he might bless them? The disciples rebuked people, and Jesus saw it, and he said he was indignant. Jesus was indignant and said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Or, Jemmy read from John 11, did you hear all of the emotional dynamics in our Savior as she read that? When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled that word is used again in verse 38. Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. That word actually, um, kind of outside the Greek New Testament, um, is used to like a horse snorting. It's actually more of like, again, an indignance and anger word. So why is Jesus angry here? He's not angry at Mary or Martha or the people that are weeping. He's angry at the effects of the fall and how it hurts people 
and it's brought about death and sorrow and suffering and pain, and he's angry, and he came to do something about it. So, I mean, he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he still wept. He's not this, like, robotic, kind of stoic God. Well, just wait a second. No, he weeps. He wept at the tomb. So he's full of anger. He's also full of tears. He was troubled and sorrowful before the Garden of Gethsemane, John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Um, In the Garden of Gethsemane, taking Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. My soul is very sorrowful even to death, which makes us think of Isaiah 54, this suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And Jesus was also full of joy. Luke 10, 21, in the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then he speaks to the disciples and he prays for the disciples in John 15 and following. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If my joy is in you, your joy will be full because my joy is full. Jesus is full of joy. He endured the cross, how? For the joy, or why? For the joy set before him, Hebrews 12, 2. So there's this crazy, wonderful, beautiful, glorious combination of fullness of joy and burdened by sorrows and grief in Jesus. That's wisdom. Righteous anger and pity and compassion and indignation and tears. So wisdom is not stoicism. It's not the denial or the destruction or the avoidance or the ignoring of emotions. It's the redeeming and purifying and disciplining and shaping and channeling of our emotions toward love of God and others. Because our emotions reveal what we love and what we value. We need the alignment of our emotions with the way God has made us and this world so we can live competently according to God's good and benevolent design. Do you hear the definition of wisdom that we've used in the series thus far? Skill or competence to live life as God intended. And it flows in the book of Proverbs from the beginning of wisdom, the fear of Yahweh, God at the center. Fear of Yahweh and loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength are like two ways of saying the same thing, a negative way and a positive way, tails and heads. So we need wisdom with our emotions, and Jesus came to show us the way and to die to pay the debt for all of our sinful emotions And he rose again to redeem us from all of our emotional slavery, to heal us from all of our emotional brokenness, to help us to walk in newness of life. So this is not something that you just learn and then you've got it figured out. No, it's a lifelong path of wisdom and renewal. We've got to walk it every day with Jesus. So the book of Proverbs shines light on that path and so many other parts of the Bible do as well. But let's look. Point number four, 
at some wisdom for emotions from the book of Proverbs. We're going to take three emotions and see what Proverbs says about them. Fear, anger, and joy. So just three representative samples. Um, There are other emotions, obviously, and the Bible speaks to those, but this is what we can cover this morning. So first, fear. Fear can either be wise or foolish, okay? To give you one example that Proverbs mentions of foolish fear, Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in Yahweh, trusts in the Lord, is safe. So God wants to shape and redeem and renew our fears. Fear of man, what is that? It's to bow to people as the greatest source of threat and blessing in your life. It's one way to say it. Fear of man or fear of fearing people is to bow to people as the greatest source of threat or the greatest source of blessing in your life. It's it's to allow people to dictate your life and control you in ways that only God should. It's to so need their smile, approval, respect, that you're willing to sin to obtain it. Or it's to so want to avoid their frown, hate, rejection, etc., disapproval, that you're willing to sin to avoid those things. So when we fear man, what is it that we're actually fearing? Well, of course it could be physical harm, right? There are people that may try to hurt you or kill you. That's not all we fear when we fear man, right? We also fear losing approval, losing somebody's allegiance or their help or their support or their affection or their respect or their esteem. We fear their displeasure, their disapproval, their rejection, their condemnation. And this isn't just, you know, something that characterizes life in teenage peer groups, although I certainly remember acutely feeling that when I was a teenager. It's us adults, too. Like, we so badly want to be accepted by the right people. Work life, social life, the right crowd, even at church. Like, we hate being on the outside, not fitting in anywhere. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Why does it lay a snare? Well, when you're a slave to the fear of man, you're going to be susceptible to a lot of other dangers. You lay a snare and, you know, a situation comes up, you're put on the spot and you lie. The snare snaps. Or why do we exaggerate? Why do we minimize? Why do we downplay? Why do we blame shift? Why do we manipulate? Why do we cheat? Fear of man. Your boss, oh, I was just about to do that. A spouse. You can fear disappointing your spouse or fear the rant and lie or not answer the question. Yeah, I was just leaving. Hurry up and throw your stuff together. And... Or you hide or lie about purchases. Fear of man. Parents can actually fear their kids. You fear your child will reject you and you go soft on discipline. You fear the tantrums, so you avoid the needed discipline. Parents can bribe or manipulate out of the same fears. Any flattery, any manipulation we engage in in any way finds its root here. 
Or think about how much our fear of man keeps us from sharing the gospel. Or think about how we fail to love people when we're unwilling to speak the truth in love, when a hard thing needs to be said, when we need to confront somebody, and we're so afraid of burning the bridge that we don't do it. So we can see how dangerous fear of man is. The alternative is to trust in the Lord. It doesn't say whoever fears the Lord is safe. It says whoever trusts in the Lord. But fear and faith are really closely wedded in the Bible and certainly in Proverbs. Fear of the Lord is beginning the wisdom and trust in the Lord with all your heart are very similar statements. So remember the definition. Fear of man is to bow to people as the greatest source of threat and blessing in your life. But to trust in the Lord Oh, that's a totally different orientation. <laughs> like, is the greatest threat or blessing going to come from another person in your life? Like losing your job or financial security or losing a friend or social position. I mean, again, I'm not saying those things aren't hard or difficult, but the greatest threat in our lives is the consequences of our sin before a holy God. The greatest threat is hell and eternal condemnation by God. The greatest blessings come from God himself at the center. So trusting in the Lord begins with us believing the gospel of Jesus. Jesus dying in our place for our sins, taking care of the greatest threats that we could never handle on our own. And then he gives us the greatest blessings like Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenlies. Romans 8 like nothing can separate us from the love of God. No threat, greatest blessing. No ultimate threat. So why do we still fall for the fear of man? Because the wrong things are big and the wrong things are small. We can cower before a bunch of shadow threats or clamor for a bunch of shadow blessings. You know, shadows can throw, disp or, you know, shadows can sometimes be disproportionately long. So we're governed by fear of people, being people pleasers, when we bow to people as the greatest source of threat and blessing in our lives. So fear of man says that God is, at least in this regard, really small at the moment, and people are really big. Have you ever heard of Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God Is Small? Great book on fear of man, people pleasing. I guess I'm recommending three books this morning. <laughs> so fearing man is like looking at God through the wrong end of the telescope, Or, like pointing the telescope the right way around at the people around us, again, in the wrong direction. Telescopes are meant to magnify not the people around you. They're meant to magnify great, massive things that are very far away, but seem small, but they're actually awesome and big. So think about it. If we're going to avoid this snare, we don't just kill our fear of man. We need to see God for who he is how big he is, how great he is. We need to cultivate the fear of Yahweh and cultivate trust in this infinitely glorious and big God who is real and see the shadow threats and the shadow blessings for what they are. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. I'm going to skip that quote. We'll go to anger, okay? So fear, anger, um, there is wise and there is foolish anger. 
Proverbs mainly focuses on curbing and controlling and forsaking sinful anger and its effects. So control of emotions, particularly anger, is in the realm of wisdom. Slow to anger is wisdom. Ready? We're going to go through a handful of texts here um, quickly. So Proverbs 14, 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. So we're going to go through these quickly, but these would be good to write down, especially if you are dealing with anger, so that you can slow down and ponder these passages and let them by God's grace and by his spirit, shape you. Like, oh Lord, I am so quick with my anger. I'm slow to listen. I'm quick to speak. Like, would you please give me grace, give me wisdom, help me live this out, shape me. Give yourself to God. Give these emotions to God. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. So fight your fallen emotions by faith. Don't fake it on the one hand and don't just vent on the other. Proverbs 16, 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. This is real strength. Proverbs 19, 11, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And oh, isn't that rooted in the character of God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. So we see the dangerous effects of anger in our own souls and in relationships. Proverbs, look at, look at, look at the damage that anger can do in relationships. Proverbs 29, 22, a man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Or Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So are you more like gasoline or water when conflict arises or when someone provokes you? Lord, make us more like water. Are you more like a peacemaking shock absorber or a peace-breaking pugilist? Proverbs 17.14, again, wisdom here. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Once it starts, it's hard to stop it. So Ray Ortland says this, anger is a judging emotion. Anger in our hearts, feeling that something is wrong, and a lot is wrong, but wisdom brings this judging emotion under, I'm sorry, wisdom brings this judging emotion itself under judgment. Fools, un fools unleash it without filtering. In so doing, they exalt. They lift up for everyone to see their own folly. But the wise rule their emotions with a nobility that outclasses world conquerors. Proverbs 16, 32. He who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. Conquering a city is child's play compared with ruling the turbulent, demanding, upset world inside us. The one is only the day of the battle of a day. The other is the conflict of a lifetime. So that whole quote is helpful, but Think about those first four sentences. Anger is a judging emotion. What am I judging here? Do I have the right to make this judgment? Anger is our heart's feeling that something is wrong. Well, what is wrong? Again, there is righteous anger when things are wrong. We shouldn't be indifferent to evil and injustice. But what is wrong? Why is it wrong? Is there anything wrong in me? 
Well, a lot is wrong. I need to sift out the righteous from my unrighteous anger. And there's much unrighteous anger in us. We have good reason to be suspicious of ourselves. Wisdom brings this judging emotion itself under judgment. If anger is a judging emotion, if anger is in my heart, feeling that something is wrong, if a lot is wrong, especially in me, that's where we start, then what if I got angry and judged as wrong my own righteous, unrighteous sorry, anger? It just might lead to repentance and for, from repentance to the grace of God that he promises to the humble and from that promised grace to the peaceful calm from which I can bless and not curse. Again, we need to practice this over and over and over again until it becomes part of who we are. And finally, joy. And lots in the Proverbs on joy and cheerfulness and gladness. There's also wise recognition that joy and sorrow can simultaneously coexist. Like Proverbs 14, 13, even in laughter the heart may ache and the end of joy may be grief or as the Apostle Paul said, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Proverbs 17, 22 says, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Like, we need joy. A crushed spirit is hard to endure, isn't it? But praise God, Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus is proof of it. It's why he came. Hallelujah. Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Proverbs 15, 30, the light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. Saints, brothers and sisters, we have a good word to make us glad this morning. We have good news to refresh our bones. We have Jesus, our emotional redeemer. He bore our sorrows that we might have his joy and his peace. And then we might be able to bear our sorrows and even bear the burdens and sorrows of others. He endured the cross for the joy set before him that his joy might be ours and that we might be able to willingly take up our crosses and follow him on the path of wisdom, learning to love God and neighbor with all of our heart. So remember how I said at the beginning that all emotions are responsive. That's ultimately because we were made by God, for God. He initiates, we respond. We can love well. We can grow in this. Our, our loves can be ordered well, better, because he first loved us so well and continues to love us well. We can rejoice in the Lord always, not because life is always peachy with Jesus. No, life is hard. But because our life is bound up with Jesus who never changes, and, he, and, and our joy is not in our circumstances that fluctuate all the time. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So even though we may be sorrowful, we can be always rejoicing because our joy is in Jesus. So in this world, we will have trouble, but our joy can't ultimately be held hostage by this broken world. We can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray and sing that he would be our vision.
Lord, so much to unpack in your word on this topic and so much to unpack in our own hearts. We can only begin, but help us to begin. Help us to take up this work by faith, trusting in you, bringing ourselves, body, mind, and spirit to you day in and day out, seeking your wisdom, seeking your redeeming, renewing work to shape us as whole people, to reorder and align and shape our loves and our hates, our fears and our desires for our good, for your glory, for the good of others. We pray that you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen.